Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Dr. John Iskander, and on behalf of CDC, I'd like to welcome you to Public Health Grand Rounds for December 2015. Continuing education credits for Public Health Grand Rounds are available for physicians, nurses, pharmacists, health educators, and other health professionals. Please see more at the Grand Rounds website. Our disclosure for this session is noted here. Grand Rounds is available on all of your favorite web and social media sites. We are also live tweeting today. Use hashtag CDC Grand Rounds. Here's a preview of upcoming Grand Round sessions. Please join us live or on the web at your convenience. I'd like to thank today's featured speakers and the many people who helped to make this session possible. We have a featured video segment on YouTube and our website called Beyond the Data, which is posted shortly after the session. This month's segment features my interview with Dr. Stephen Monroe. We've also partnered with the CDC Public Health Library to feature scientific articles relevant to the session. The full listing is available on the Science Clips website. Phil is CDC's public health image library and contains thousands of high-resolution images. Phil allows users to easily access copyright-free images, illustrations, and videos at phil.cdc.gov. Many of the photos in today's presentation are available on the Laboratory Science Featured Collection on the Phil main page. It's now my pleasure to introduce the CDC Director, Dr. Tom Frieden. Thanks very much, and thanks to our speakers for being here today. Ever since CDC was founded, laboratories have been critical to, in fact, central to our ability to get the job done. They are critical to why CDC can definitively state what's going on, whether it's in infectious diseases or environmental health or occupational health, and they're crucial to our success going forward. CDC scientists use and often invent the latest technologies in laboratory work. This involves detection of infectious organisms, foodborne outbreaks, biosecurity threats, monitoring the health of communities, identifying health problems, uh, and monitoring worker safety. Because of the nature of the organisms and toxins that, is done, that are studied at CDC, there is an inherent level of risk in the work that we do. And we need to recognize that we must at the same time do everything possible to minimize that risk while also recognizing that we should take a hard look at the potential benefits of the projects we do to make sure that they have a reasonable chance of outweighing that non-zero but minimized risk. We're really proud of the progress that's been made in CDC laboratories in recent years. Since 2014, uh, people throughout CDC have been focusing on reinvigorating a culture of science and safety in CDC laboratories. This includes the appointment of Dr. Steve Monroe as a single point of accountability and our first newly created position of Associate Director for Laboratory Science and Safety. But more importantly, throughout the more than 150 labs throughout CDC, looking at what we're doing to enhance both the science and the safety of it. 
just as the number one priority of all of our programs at CDC is to keep people safe, healthy, and secure, the number one priority of our laboratories is to ensure that both our laboratory scientists and staff and our surrounding communities are kept safe and secure. CDC's laboratories serve as the de facto reference laboratory for the world aiding in critical disease detection efforts all around the world. I will say that even today, I've had three or four separate meetings where the critical role of CDC laboratories in verifying or extending or assessing a health threat in this country or around the world has come up. So this is something that occurs not just occasionally, not just daily, but multiple times a day throughout the organization. I was asked in 2009 by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution what I thought was the, the most unsung hero at uh, public health, and I said it was the laboratory, because the laboratories really are crucial to our ability to protect Americans and protect people around the world. And we can do that only effectively if we also ensure that we're protecting our valuable and treasured staff who work within the laboratories. So I'm delighted that we have uh, presentations from very accomplished scientists. I've learned a lot from all three of them in uh, the work over the last several years on enhancing our laboratory work. Uh, and if you think about some of the new developments in laboratory, whether it's advanced molecular detection, or informatics, or specimen transfer, or micro uh, ways of testing samples, uh, this is an exciting time to work in laboratory science. And we want to make sure that CDC stays, remains, and will always be at the forefront of both laboratory science and safety. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Frieden. Our first speaker is Dr. Steve Monroe. Good afternoon and welcome. Today I would like to give you an overview of the scope of the laboratory science at CDC, the evolution of laboratory safety practices over time, and describe some of the steps CDC has taken recently to strengthen and enhance our, our culture of safety at the, at the agency. So for more than half a century, CDC laboratories have played a critical role in the agency's ability to control, contain, and eliminate disease. Malaria control in war areas, WCM, MCWA, uh, the predecessor to CDC, was established in 1942 to control malaria around military training bases in the United States. The agency was located here in Atlanta because the South was the area of the country that had the most malaria transmission. After World War II ended, Dr. Joseph Mountain, here on the left, envisioned an agency that could continue this work and would support state and local health units in investigating and controlling infectious diseases, um, outbreaks, and maintain the nation's health through local control measures. The CDC initially focused on malaria, typhus, uh, and other infectious diseases. But over the next 60 years, the scope of CDC's work changed, the agency's name changed, uh, but the CDC initials have remained constant throughout. Today, CDC's laboratory work has expanded to include essentially all infectious diseases, non-infectious diseases, environmental health, and occupational health. The expertise and world-class knowledge CDC scientists bring to their laboratory work is crucial for protecting Americans' health, safety, and security. 
CDC laboratories serve as a vital reference lab for the U.S. and the world, aiding in critical disease detection, outbreak investigation, and public health research. Some of our activities include detecting infectious organisms, foodborne outbreaks, and biosecurity threats, newborn screening to detect genetic and other health risk factors, monitoring the health of communities, and studying the risk factors affecting our nation's workforce. There is virtually no aspect of public health to which CDC laboratory scientists do not contribute. Many of their activities bridge this gap between public health and the healthcare system. More than 2,000 laboratory scientists and professionals from a wide variety of disciplines work in more than 150 laboratory groups across all levels of biosafety, including biosafety level four, where the most dangerous pathogens are studied. They work with the most challenging health threats to protect the health of Americans and people around the world. CDC laboratory scientists study virtually every known infectious pathogen and discover new ones as they emerge in the human population. They log more than five, four million hours each year performing over 5,000 tests every day, working closely with state and local public health laboratories to confirm causes of local outbreaks, with industry to improve the safety and quality of vaccines and other drugs, and with other governmental and non-governmental partners to identify environmental hazards. Our laboratory scientists are driven by a desire to learn how the world works. And historically, many methods are introduced into the lab before they are fully vetted by safety experts. Laboratory safety standards, therefore, evolve over time as new information becomes available about how laboratorians can do their work in the safest way possible. <clears throat> On the left is a scientist in 1943 extracting samples using organic solvents. Many solvents are toxic and are known carcinogens. The worker in this photo is not wearing personal protective equipment that would protect him from potential airborne or contact contaminants. On the right is a picture from 1967. Here, scientists are also not wearing the appropriate PPE, and they are using the technique of mouth pipetting, which, while standard practice at the time, is no longer considered acceptable. As more information is learned concerning the hazards evolved in laboratory work, the wearing of PPE, the culture of laboratory safety has improved significantly. For example, both of these laboratory scientists are inoculating embryonated chicken eggs with live influenza virus. The woman on the left is not using PPE and is working on an open bench top. The woman on the right is wearing the appropriate PPE working inside a biological safety cabinet, or BSC, and the, and the airflow within this BSC helps prevent any airborne virus from escaping. And she's also wearing a powered air purifying respirator, or PAPR, to further protect her from respiratory exposure. Laboratory science is inherently risky, and as we study infectious pathogens, toxins, and other hazards to improve public health, we have to implement control measures that can minimize the risk while continuing to serve this critical function. 
Now recently, CDC laboratory staff were involved in separate and unrelated laboratory incidents that prompted CDC to reevaluate its culture of laboratory safety. In 2014, there were three high-profile laboratory incidents at CDC. Following the initial events, the CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden, testified on behalf of the agency, stating that he believed these incidents reflected a pattern of an insufficient culture of laboratory safety within CDC. For all three incidents, carefully investigating what went wrong was the beginning of CDC's commitment to improve laboratory safety and security. The purpose of the investigations was not only to determine the underlying cause of the problem, but also to find solutions to avoid them in the future. For the anthrax incident, the issue was improper inactivation of live bacterial spores. In response, CDC instituted a review of all inactivation protocols of BSL-3 and BSL-4 pathogens. For influenza, the issue was cross-contamination of a low pathogenic avian influenza virus with a highly pathogenic avian influenza virus. In response, CDC required separation of work with different influenza viruses by both time and space, as well as instituting quality testing for all materials that are shipped out of CDC's high containment laboratories. And for Ebola, Ebola the issue was a, a misidentification of two samples taken from the same experiment, one to be used for live virus isolation and the other was inactivated. In response, CDC required the use of a color coding sample identifier to more easily distinguish between a live sample and an inactivated one. In order to further improve CDC's culture of laboratory safety, CDC convened an external advisory committee of laboratory safety experts. They visited our campus, spoke with laboratory scientists, and reviewed our activities. Following their visits, they issued two reports to help improve CDC's laboratory safety culture. Some of the key issues identified by the group that were lacking in 2014 included um, unclear agency-level leadership in the role of laboratory science and governance of several of our oversight committees. They also identified gaps in laboratory staff training, completion of risk assessments, consistency of laboratory accreditation, and clear guidance on incident notification. Since then, CDC has established a single point of accountability under my leadership as the Associate Director for Laboratory Science and Safety. My office oversees and monitors the development and implementation of laboratory safety and quality management programs across CDC. Our vision is to establish CDC as the gold standard for both laboratory safety and science. This is nothing less than what the public health community should expect from a world-renowned public health agency. One priority is improving how CDC trains the next generation of laboratory scientists. CDC established a two-year fellowship to develop scientists who integrate safety and quality as principal standards of practice. These Laboratory Leadership Service, or LLS fellows, work in CDC laboratories and serve the agency and its partners by providing creative and effective approaches to real-world real laboratory issues. 
The program is aligned with CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service, or EIS, to promote interdisciplinary training, applied learning, and networking. These LLS, LLS fellows have already participated in two epidemic aids and one laboratory field response, and have traveled to Guinea-Bissau as part of CDC's Ebola response. CDC is currently in the process of matching the 2016 fellows with their host laboratories and will open applications for the class of 2017 beginning in May of 2016. Another priority has been to establish <clears throat> a CDC way of conducting risk assessments. As in most fields of public health, risk assessment involves weighing both benefits and risks. This applies to individual experiments as well as to the conduct of laboratory science more broadly. We are currently training our laboratory scientists to better conduct risk assessments of all their work. Before any experiment is done, we want CDC laboratory scientists to measure the risks versus the benefits of their research and determine if there are safer approaches, for instance, the use of non-pathogenic strains, that would produce similar data towards the same goal. They should also think about potential problems that could arise during the experimental process. During their experiments, researchers should be confident in knowing <clears throat> excuse me, how to react to unexpected events and to promptly notify their supervisors of any laboratory incidents that may occur. We are also reinforcing the expectation that both incidents and near misses should be reported and that no adverse actions will be taken against the staff for doing so. Finally, when the experiment is complete, we want our scientists to reflect on ways in which they could have done their work more safely and apply lessons learned to design future experiments in a cycle of continuous improvement. <clears throat> CDC is addressing this and all other recommendations from the advisory committee, making significant progress over the last year. If you would like more information about what CDC is doing to make our laboratories safer, please visit the CDC's lab safety website. <clears throat> because of the vital role of CDC laboratories in the conduct of public health, research and surveillance, the unique work of CDC laboratories will continue. Under my office's leadership, CDC will strive to meet continuing standards of excellence and high standards of safety. Improving the culture within the organization takes time and persistence. With new technologies and safety data on current laboratory practices, we will utilize every opportunity to improve safety and quality of the laboratory science at CDC. By focusing on risk assessment, we will work closely with CDC laboratory scientists to add value to their programs. The nature of our laboratory work means that there will always be some risk. We can't stop our work. It's too important to our ability to protect Americans and keep us all safe. But we are committed to remaining vigilant, transparent, and proactive. Thank you very much, and I would now like to introduce Dr. Conrad Quinn. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to share with you today an example of a laboratory at CDC that puts safety and quality first from its inception. I'll share with you some of the lessons that may be taken for laboratory science and leadership more broadly. 
In the late 1990s, CDC was tasked by Congress to undertake a comprehensive research program on the safety and the immunogenicity of the US licensed anthrax vaccine, the Anthrax Vaccine Research Program, or AVRP. Based in part on the agency's public trust and its reputation for high quality science, this program was initiated prior to 9-11 and the anthrax letter attacks of 2001. It involved multiple areas of CDC expertise and collaboration with interagency partners, clinical sites, and academia. It was also subject to review by the Institute of Medicine. CDC was asked to conduct a clinical trial of the anthrax vaccine to determine if fewer doses and a different route of administration could be used to establish immune correlates of protection and to optimize the primary series and booster schedule. The primary outcomes were to assure the vaccine's safety and immunogenicity. CDC does not routinely lead clinical trials which require extensive laboratory and regulatory capacity and strict adherence to protocols. Uniquely in this instance, CDC designed, managed, analyzed, and reported the data for this clinical study to the FDA. CDC was the study sponsor and also provided the data to the vaccine manufacturer. Our team of seven scientists stood up the Microbial Pathogenesis and Immune Response Laboratory in early 2001 to support the AVRP. To succeed fully for the anthrax vaccine clinical trial and to provide related expertise, the laboratory had to have rigorous quality and safety controls in place. In the absence of an umbrella quality assurance program, we had to build one to meet the AVRP requirements. We drew heavily on the relevant components of the International Standards Organization, the good laboratory practices, and CLIA to ensure that our use of anthrax serology was compliant for supportive clinical trials, clinical case confirmation, and patient management. Recognizing that safety and quality assurance are linked not only were our immune response assays rigorously validated to ICH guidelines, but our study-specific processes and procedures were managed and monitored within a quality management system. Organization and personnel are recognized components of the 12 quality essentials. We quickly learned that multitasking was both stressful and inefficient. To fulfill the quality essentials, therefore, we organized into specific teams to develop specific skill sets. Our team recognized that the high public trust that CDC enjoys was a privilege and not a right. To maintain that trust and ensure traceability of all reported data to its origins, the primary record, our QMS needed to be capable of recording and monitoring not only processes and procedures, but also team members' qualifications, trainings, and proficiency. Supervisors and management in laboratories need to match their actions, as both leaders and scientists, to their words. For laboratory quality and safety issues, we need to rethink the saying, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Indeed, to quote Vince Lombardi, perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, then we can catch excellence. Under the ISO system, there are eight primary principles of quality management. It's our investment, and implementation of these basic tenets of management that are our keys to success. <clears throat> to successfully implement quality management principles, we must first understand what is required of us as leaders. The eight ISO principles of management are given more granularity as the 12 quality essentials, which encompass safety, incident management, 
and continuous improvement. So building a high-performing laboratory is a not-so-cleverly disguised leadership exercise. The essentials outlined here can be applied to leadership challenges in many public health and healthcare settings. The challenge is to position the team and its members for success by providing the framework and resources by which they may excel. If we know what we're aiming for, then we are bound to succeed, as long as we continue to persevere. Setting objectives is therefore a critical component of success. There's a variety of well-established tools for this purpose. Our lab team adopted the SMART objectives approach. Central to the SMART approach is that objectives must be relevant and realistic. Objectives are resource-dependent and resource-constrained. In the spirit of form-following function, leaders should recruit and align people with specific roles and ensure they have the laboratory and knowledge resources to support them. Investment in resources must be of benefit and be sustainable. Of course, our most important resources are our people. Investing in people means empowerment with responsibility and accountability. If knowing what we are aiming for is critical to success, so too is knowing where we fit, owning what we do, and striving to be the best at what we do. After our people, our next most important resources are the facilities and equipment on which we depend. Assuring quality of science and laboratory safety requires that we protect, manage, and maintain these assets. Examples may include brand preventative maintenance, operational qualification, and performance monitoring. When building our capabilities in science, safety, and quality management, we considered it important to identify and harness existing technologies and expertise. If someone else has developed a useful tool, we should not hesitate to adopt it and apply it. Indeed, we should seek it out and seek out the tools that others have developed. Examples of this might be established analytical systems for data processing, enterprise-level laboratory information management systems for specimen and data management, routine use of the CDC ITSDR specimen packaging and inventory and repository, working with CDC information technology and facility safety and security experts on secure network access, data transfer and storage, and also adopting best practices from other institutes and agencies. Quality and safety functions are integrally related and mutually supportive. This integration involves the laboratory quality managers, safety liaisons, and individual team members. Examples include the establishment of procedure-specific risk assessments, staff training records, all of which are managed within the QMS. Work that is not done safely may not meet quality standards, and work that needs to be repeated because of quality concerns can increase safety risks and costs. Monitoring has to be appropriate to the task at hand and safeguards may need to be built in. Clearly, this was not the case for these youngsters in the photo. <laughs> Whether we are training for competitive sports or learning to develop an artistic or a scientific skill, we learn and retain best when we do so with intent. In laboratory safety, we need to develop a core basic curriculum that serves as a foundation on which to build speciality training, such as biocontainment. As with risk assessments, the core curriculum must be derived from training specific to the purpose and have clear expectations for the participant. 
A successful curriculum will have defined course outcomes with measures of competency or proficiency that confirm the training has been successful. A central theme to QMS is that if it's not recorded, then it wasn't done. Documentation not only of procedures, but also their completion and the recording of data according to protocol are of the utmost importance in quality management. To ensure that only current and correct information is circulated, we implemented a document control system. Another important interface between quality and safety is the development of procedure-associated risk assessments, along with the reporting and tracking of incidents and occurrences. The risk assessment provides actionable information on the hazard, the risk due to the procedure applied, best practices to mitigate that risk, and how to respond should an accident occur. Recording incidents and events provides records for root cause analysis, the impact of an incident, and the necessary corrective and preventative actions. Tracking events helps identify systemic problems and sets the basis for corrective action plans. Documentation includes validation of the scientific methods in data generation, analysis, and management used to report patient data. Each of the primary and secondary endpoint assays used in the AVRP completed an extensive scientific development activity. Development experiments define assay performance characteristics under specific protocols and operating conditions. Characteristics defined include the lower limits of detection, dilutional linearity, accuracy, reproducibility, and reliability. Development establishes parameters for subsequent validation, which documents that a unique set of test materials will generate data within the performance characteristics of the assay. Assay development and validation, together with protocol-driven data analysis and management, collectively provide us with evidence-based interpretation of results. The QMS process also provides a traceability pathway from the final report back to the original assay primary record. Should there ever be a need to reevaluate a result, the pathway is clear. Structured though it is, quality and safety management also needs to be flexible and adaptable. While focus and discipline are certainly invaluable to achieving the long-term goal, inflexibility can be counterproductive. People need space to be themselves, but not to lose sight of the goal. This balance of keeping with the plan but remaining flexible is a principle of quality improvement that can be applied not just to laboratories, but to teams, projects, and many other public health enterprises. The balance is captured in the concept of the plan, do, check, act cycle. Awareness of this cycle is important not only for leaders and managers, but also for team members. They can proactively help to improve quality and safety. For those interested in management and leadership as their careers progress, the plan, do, check, act cycle will remain important. And so we come to the part about reaping the benefits of all this investment, planning, objective setting, and hard work. As a basis for regulatory action, there were clear, tangible outcomes. In collaboration with interagency partners, particularly the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, we established leading technologies for the evaluation of vaccines and the determination of immune correlates of protection. The laboratory component of the AVRP generated more than 70 peer-reviewed publications, multiple patents, multiple CDC honor awards, and nine nominations for CDC's highest award for science. 
As a post-licensure clinical trial, the AVRP was the largest ever prospective study of any anthrax vaccine, with 1,563 participants over a 43-month enrollment and five participating clinical sites. The AVRP provided the pivotal data for three important changes to the use of the U.S. anthrax vaccine, a change to fewer doses and intramuscular administration, resulting in decreased frequency and severity of injection site reactions, simplification of the primary series to three doses over six months, and protection against anthrax disease following the third dose. It also provided pivotal non-clinical studies to evaluate the duration of vaccine-induced protection, immune correlates of protection, and with our collaborators, established predictive modeling of vaccine efficacy in humans. The AVRP was a resounding success, completing all aspects of the congressional mandate and representing a significant return on the investment placed in CDC. The benefits extended well beyond into primary objectives of the AVRP. The capacity and infrastructure investments found direct application in the emergency responses to the anthrax letter attacks in 2001 the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, development of broad collaborations in high-impact investigative science, and established CDC as a leader in the development of correlates of protection models for other vaccine applications. Enhancing the team's reputation has also generated successful funding applications and expansion of our investigative research activities to include other vaccine-preventable bacterial diseases. High-quality leadership and management are at the core of all successes. The leaders that inspire their teams and colleagues to challenge the status quo and to be selfless in pursuing the vision of excellence are the leaders whose legacies will endure. Building and protecting our reputation as stewards of public health and honoring the trust that our constituents place in us must be a high priority at all times. As we should strive to succeed, we should also strive to improve. And so to finish, I'll leave you with this thought regarding developing and embracing a culture of quality and safety. No matter how good we really are, no matter how good we think we are, and no matter how good others think we are, we must accept that change is a natural progression, and we must embrace it, and we must make it a change for the better. Thank you. Our final speaker today is Dr. Joseph Canabrocki. Thank you, Dr. Quinn. Uh, thank you, Dr. Iskander and Dr. Frieden for the invitation to uh, be here today. I'm, I'm really pleased to be part of the program. Uh, I'm gonna begin by saying that, in my view, uh, a culture of safety at a research institution is part and parcel of establishing a culture of responsible science. As we all know, responsible science is, is uh, being debated heavily today as we uh, embark on gain-of-function research uh, of concern, dual-use research of concern. These are all things that are being debated in the realm of being responsible scientists. Culture of safety uh, really uh, requires an investment uh, in and a commitment from people that make up the organization. And leadership is critical. Leadership must be demonstrated at pretty much every level of the institution, from the top down by uh, the leadership to provide administrative support, moral support, and financial support for those of us that do safety. And really from the bottom up, from getting buy-in from our staff scientists and researchers, 
uh, and, and a commitment to uh, the safety program. So I think you know, things that are really uh, important here are uh, good communication, the development of appropriate infrastructure, and appropriate training, uh, that, uh, training that is appropriate for the, uh, the work being done. So I'm gonna share with you today one model. This is a model that uh, the University of Chicago has uh, decided to, to uh, employ in the development of its lab safety programs. Uh, and I'm at the risk of losing you very early in my talk, I'm gonna show two org charts here, but uh, I'll go through these quickly. Um, so at, at the university, there are two groups that, that do safety. There's the Environmental Health and Safety Program, which is a long-established program and formerly was involved and responsible for all aspects of, of safety at the university. This group reports up through the Associate Vice President for Safety and Security, up through Finance and Administration, and ultimately up to the President. Following two uh, reviews of safety programs at the University of Chicago, one external and one internal, uh, the new Office of Research Safety was established not that long ago. It was May of 2014, so just over a year ago, the Office of Research Safety was established. So I report directly to the VP for Research, who reports directly to the President. And very importantly, we have the support of the Provost and the Deans. So we have the Provost Research Safety Policy Council, which is a committee that meets quarterly and is the committee responsible for the establishment of all safety policy at the University of Chicago as it relates to research. So again, commitment from the highest levels of the institution are demonstrated here. Now, at the, when you look at the Office of Research Safety itself, obviously we work very closely with the Provost Committee as well as with Environmental Health and Safety. Environmental Health and Safety uh, continues to do uh, indoor air quality, accident uh, investigation, fire safety, industrial safety, generally speaking. But the Research uh, Safety Office has four groups. There's the Biosafety Group, the Laboratory Compliance Group, which oversees the Institutional Biosafety Committee, the IACUC, Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, and the Dual Use Research of Concern Task Force. The Chem Safety Program uh, obviously um, oversees chem safety, and then we have the Radiation and Laser Safety Program. A couple of things I want to emphasize here is that many of the staff of the Office of Research Safety are former bench scientists themselves, and so they've done, their, they've done the research, they know what it's like to, to work at the bench, and very importantly, they can speak the lingo of, of the people with uh, whom they work at, in the laboratories. Uh, another thing I want to point out here is that the uh, Institutional Biosafety Committee and the Oversight Committees are embedded in this, in this group, and so support for those committees comes from the Biosafety, Chem Safety, and Radiation Safety groups. And so not all of the work falls to the committee directly. So good coordination among these various groups and communication among them is, is critical for, for our success. Now at the University of Chicago, the Institutional Biosafety Committee is really responsible for oversight of any, pretty much all life sciences research that anything that involves recombinant DNA, any pathogen, whether it be a human, animal, or plant pathogen, and certain biological toxins. Now as I said, um, the, uh, the committee uh, works very closely with the biosafety group in, in performing risk assessments of the research they oversee. So part of the, that assessment is to review projects and to determine what training is appropriate for people that are going to be working on that project. So as biosafety protocols are reviewed by the IBC, persons are tagged to a variety of, one of eight courses that they, they, should, they must take depending on their activities in that protocol. 
So again, it's really not one size fits all for training. We try to target the training and make it uh, modular and, uh, and relevant to the people we are training. For people that are destined to work in high containment, and for us that means biosafety level three and animal biosafety level three, we have an intensive four-day course that we require these folks go through. Uh, it covers all your basic things that you'd expect from a didactic perspective in the, in the classroom, but we also spend half of our time in the laboratory actually doing exercises. So again, we cover many, many things, uh, but high, high emphasis on, on risk assessment and understanding laboratory-acquired infection, infections and the epidemiology of these infections so as to learn from uh, le uh, best lessons learned. I'm just going to show you some slides here, some photos of some of the training activities. This uh, slide shows one of the classes as they learn how to prepare to enter a containment laboratory. Again, another slide on donning personal protective equipment. This slide's kind of interesting. So the uh, uh, high containment research at the University of Chicago occurs at the Howard Taylor Ricketts Laboratory, which is an original biocontainment lab that sits on the, la on the con campus of Argonne National Labs. And so the first responders for this facility are the Argonne National Labs first responders. Uh, and we work very closely with, the, with these folks. And one of the things that was really effective was to actually bring them into our labs and, and do mock experiments in their presence. It was very reassuring to them, for them, to them for, to, for them to understand the scope and the quantities of materials with which we work at the research setting. One of the unanticipated benefits of our program was uh, last year when the Ebola outbreak was occurring, uh, University of Chicago Medicine was one of the hospitals uh, in the Chicago area that was deemed an Ebola hospital. And so the uh, clinicians in the medical center looked to the biosafety group to uh, provide training for the clinicians. And so your standard donning and doffing, PAPR training, decontamination were all things that we were able to teach them from our, from our experience. But we relied on our veterinarians, actually, to help us develop uh, procedures around doing clinical procedures while uh, wearing containment equipment. So again, this was a, a really very beneficial outcome of some of the training that we've been able to do. In terms of establishing and promoting uh, safety for, for, future, uh, for future generations, we, we feel it's important to develop uh, safety professionals who have a foundation, a strong foundation in science. And so we established a fellowship program at the University of Chicago that was funded through the Great Lakes Regional Center of Excellence funding program. And this is a one-year-in-residence uh, fellowship program that is intended for postdoctoral uh, 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 scientists. So uh, PhD, DVM, MD level scientists. These folks basically take part in all aspects of the biosafety program at the University of Chicago, working closely with the Institutional Biosafety Committee and other staff of the Office of Research Safety on lab inspections, lab training, uh, emergency spill response, dual use research of concern program, et cetera. But fellows are also expected to conduct applied biosafety research. And so they take advantage of the fact that we have a biocontainment facility at the University of Chicago and, uh, and embark on some um, studies that have practical applications to our biosafety operations. Of course, these fellows also present at national meetings, and ultimately their goal is to sit for and ult ultimately pass the certification exams uh, as biosafety professionals. 
I'm just going to quickly show you one slide here, one of the studies that was conducted by one of my fellows, uh, Dr. Helm. This is a, a study that uh, we wanted to look at our autoclave protocols for the Ricketts lab. When we joined the group, there were two cycles, depending on what you worked with. If you worked with a spore former, it was a three-hour autoclave cycle. Needless to say, that took its toll on autoclave equipment, as well as tying up equipment that was uh, useful to others. And so we decided to really ask that question, what's really necessary? So using two species of bacillus, as well as uh, two strains of bacillus anthracis, uh, we prepared our own spores and did um, a waste treatments of a variety of different waste types, dry, dry waste, wet waste, carcasses, et cetera, and ultimately determined that we achieved a more than eight log reduction of, uh, of viability uh, through a 40-minute autoclave cycle alone. And so this really allowed us to streamline our activities to a single autoclave cycle and much shorter in time than what we'd been using previously. So that data was presented to our IBC and they approved it and that's, the that's how we now operate. So the fellows move on after one year and I'm proud to say that uh, my fellows are now biosafety officers at pretty, uh, pretty important institutions uh, and many of them in academia, but uh, one has gone to uh, industry and one is working for the government. Reporting is very, very critical, and obviously I'm not going to walk you through this slide. Uh, this is not the brain wi uh, wiring diagram of my brain here, but uh, this, uh, this is just a slide that shows that there are multiple pathways through which one can uh, report uh, activities that are inconsistent with established procedures. It can be done directly or anonymously, and uh, we encourage this. In fact, uh, if a person doesn't report an incident that should be reported, that's when we, that's when we have issues but uh, never are there negative repercussions from reporting of incidents. Another, another tool we've tried to use is a code of conduct. And for our high containment researchers, this is a signed document that attests to their commitment to uh, conduct science in, a, in an ethical way. Uh, no plagiarism, no fabrication of data, et cetera, et cetera. But also uh, adherence to safety protocols and reporting protocols. And this is something that uh, we require our high containment labs to sign off on on an annual basis. Now, as I said, the Office of Research Safety is relatively new, and so one of my fellows came to me one day and said, you know, those people don't even know we exist. How, how, do we get to, you know, how do we get our faces out there and let people know that we're really trying to help? And he proposed the use of pop culture and uh, tongue-in-cheek humor to promote the, uh, the Office of Research Safety. So I'm going to share with you several of the slides that were uh, produced by my, by my fellow uh, uh, for, the, for this effort. Here's a slide to discourage the use of uh, cosmetics in the laboratory, uh, and eating and drinking, obviously. <laughs> for those of Lord of the Ring folks, um, we, uh, we have uh, uh, emphasis on IBC and training in this slide. For the Lebowski fans out there, one of whom is me, abide by the guidelines. We must abide by the guidelines. And then, of course, you know about the Dos Equis Most Interesting Men in the World uh, campaign. And so now we have <laughs> the most interesting man in biosafety. Notice the chlorine bottle there. And although he doesn't uh, always work with synthetic or recombinant DNA, he does have a protocol when he does so. <laughs> so I, I'll close simply by saying that uh, strengthening uh, culture safety uh, really relies on leadership at multiple levels. 
Uh, I think it's important that we develop future leaders in the realms of research safety, that there be appropriate review mechanisms and infrastructure for, uh, for oversight of research safety and, and assistance to research safety, and that we really must communicate and promote communication in both directions uh, between the research staff and the uh, research safety staff. And I'll close there. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. And we have a lot of time for questions. For, so for folks in the room, if you're in the front, there's the table microphones. Please use those. Push the button to activate the mic. For folks in the back of the room, there's the microphones on the, the side, either side of the audience. And if there's no burning questions in the room. Thank you to all three of the speakers, Chesley Richards, OFIS. Um, thank you to all three of the speakers for the presentations, in particular your comments around leadership, human factors, process, and protocols. I wonder if you might say a little bit about the gaps in where we need pay, um, laboratory safety research, particularly around engineering controls, to try to engineer out some of the human process failures. Uh, so, so I'll start, and I think the whole issue of the science of laboratory safety is something that I think is, is under-recognized uh, and underdeveloped, and that we need, there's a lot of things that we're doing because we've, we've done them that way or it's established protocol, and we need to look more closely at some of those, both the human factors and, as you say, some of the mechanical and ergonomic factors that might contribute to laboratory safety. So I would say it is a gap, um, and I'm not entirely sure what the, what the best approach is for filling that. Yeah, obviously engineering controls are, are very, very important, but f for me it's, uh, I, I, I still, you have to have good practice. And, uh, and, and an awareness. And I think uh, if you can, if a person can recognize the risk, the real risks in front of them, and, and is committed to uh, working safely and, and developing and acquires skills, you know, technical skills, I think those, you know, now obviously engineering controls can remove the person from that equation in some degree. And, and in, in many cases, this, this helps a great deal. Um, but I, I don't think we can rely, obviously rely solely on that. I think good practice is always critical. The Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Pierre Hanna. I'm actually an owner of a molecular respiratory diagnostic lab, and I'm a piggyback off of the engineering controls because um, we will like in the industry to have some type of quick reference guide on how negative should your clean room be? Or what is the airflow? Or what, how often should you change your HEPA filtration if you have an estimated of maybe 1% of positive influenza patient samples? So is the, is the CDC um, anticipating creating some quick reference guide to the industry so that we, I know you have the BMBL, because that's what we use, but again, because I'm a small lab, as opposed to a Quest or LabCorp who gets tens of thousands positives, I may get 1%. So there's a vast difference between that. Is there a way 
for the CDC to have some quick reference guides on engineering controls in a respiratory lab like myself. Uh, thanks for that question. And so two points. So one is we are starting the process with our partners at NIH to update the, the BMBL and to look to see if, if the, the current format of the BMBL is really the most useful and do we, do we need to update it. I think the caution I would have is that um, there's a lot of different uh, ways to, to, to do things and for us to be proscriptive about how to do things um, is not probably the best way and to go more towards uh, performance-based sort of standards that people can work towards. Leonard Mayer from Division of Bacterial Diseases. Um, I'd like to thank the speakers for wonderful talks. My questions for Dr. Quinn. Uh, it's obvious that ABRP was a success at multiple levels, including quality science and dealing with regulatory actions and so on. Uh, but I wonder if you could compare and contrast ABRP with some other vaccine development and evaluation programs that CDC has been central to? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, well, yes, indeed, CDC has made and continues to make pivotal contributions to many vaccine studies, both domestically and internationally. One that particularly comes to mind, as Leonard asked the question, is the uh, meningitis vaccine project in West Africa. Um, this was a huge um, public health success, probably the most sign significant public health vaccine in history. To compare that to the AVRP, well, that brought a 50-year-old vaccine into the 21st century, whereas the MVP, meningitis vaccine program, brought a new vaccine to, uh, to West Africa, an international setting, and has saved probably thousands of lives and certainly prevented hundreds of thousands of diseases. So, Compare and contrast an old vaccine brought into the 21st century versus a new vaccine brought to high public health impact in West Africa. Uh, Susan, turning to social media. Yes, from our online audiences. Regarding staffing turnover, as less experienced staff are potentially at greater risk for injury or harm, how are consequences of this being mitigated? So one of the things we're doing here at CDC is to completely uh, overhaul our, our laboratory safety training program and to look at revamping the courses to make them more up-to-date to, date, to en enhance the uh, delivery of the courses. And as, as Dr. Kanabraki pointed out, to make sure that each person um, in the lab, and whether it's a new person coming into the lab or a person who's doing a new technique, has the appropriate training for whatever um, they're encountering in the laboratory. Right. I, I mean, I, I, what we do is people start out at, you know, basically level one and work their way up. So if they have no experience, they're not going to be working with anything hazardous. And then they spend time at level two until they become competent, and then we move them into three. So it's really a, it's case by case. You can't say how many entries are required per se, depends. Some people do really well and learn quickly, others not so much. And some people don't belong there at all. <laughs> and you discover that. Again, from our online audiences, to ensure that no adverse actions will be taken for near-miss reporting, is this enough to encourage change? So. 
There's only, um, so we can enhance the, the messaging that there won't be any repercussions for, for near miss reporting. But the critical thing is that we want to use the data from near misses so that we can um, anticipate and try to avoid accidents that might occur in the future. So if anything, the near miss reporting is really a benefit and not a distraction. And that's why we want to encourage that as much as possible. Yeah, I, I would just add that I, I think if you really are successful at developing a culture, you're going to have people watching out for each other. And it doesn't even necessarily need to make its way up the top to the chain of command. You have peer pressure, and people won't stand for people misbehaving if they're going to be put at risk. So I, I think, again, top, up, top down, bottom up, you have, to, you have to have that foundation of people at the bench who are committed to this and who are going to watch out for each other. In, in the room? Me. I'm Bob Hill with Battelle. I'm wondering, how, do you, how are you going to measure the strength of a safety culture? You know, in other words, you're here today. What measures are you going to use to know that you're where you need to be? It's a good question, and we don't want to use uh, incidents as our measure of, of success or, or, la or lack thereof. And in some sense, getting back to the previous question, uh, the more near misses we get reported, then that's going to be a measure of the success of getting out the message about the culture of safety. I know that I'll know that I'm successful when the PIs are calling me and asking me for help with their IBC protocol, and the and the students and staff are calling me and saying I want to be trained. Yeah. From our Grand Rounds email box. How do you maintain the culture of safety long-term? Long-term, I think it's uh, from, as Dr. Kanabraki said, the commitments from the leadership, the commitments of resources, um, and the um, just continual messaging to our staff that this is not a one-time deal, that it's a, a continuous cycle of improvement. Hey, wow. Hello, my question is for Dr. Steve Monroe. Um, I'm the biosafety officer, new biosafety officer here at DSR. I'm curious to know uh, the approach here at CDC um, in uh, matters wherein export control and biosafety overlap. I'm curious because I have implemented and managed both biosafety and also export control program at an academic institution. I'm just curious. I'm sorry, biosafety and, and export and control? The, yep, at times they overlap. So I'm just curious the approach here at CDC, I'm totally new. So. Well, certainly, as I mentioned, and one of the things that we're emphasizing is to ensure that any time that we're sending out material, that if we're sending it out as an activated material, that we have verification that it's inactivated, that if we're sending out something as an infectious agent, that we've verified what it is, but also what it is not. So inclusivity and exclusivity testing as part of anything that gets uh, sent out from the institution. Mm -hmm. All right, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to stop there. Um, Thanks again to all of our, um, all of our speakers um, and to CDC leaders and to all of our audience. Uh, please join us uh, next month for Public Health Grand Rounds. Thank you. Over 2,000 CDC laboratory scientists work with some of the deadliest health threats in the world to protect Americans. 
this group is unique in that we are the primary source at CDC that tests and evaluates tissues with unexplained deaths. We can test for over 200 pathogens, including viruses, bacteria, parasites, fungi. Many times you have a sick patient and the doctor can only tell them, we don't know what's causing this infection. They send it to us and we can identify it. With that identification, it gives them the knowledge to be able to treat that disease. I think some people find it surprising that lab workers go out into the field. For my branch, it's very important. That way we find the animals and try to better understand where the virus is coming from. In this lab, we're looking at chemicals that are present in the environment and are chemicals that may be affecting human health. In particular, in this lab, we're looking at pesticides. Let's say that there's a hospital or something that has a a excess number of a certain infection of some kind, then we can go in and we can look at the water, we can look at all the environmental sources like the air, and make sure that we're finding where those things are coming from so that we can stop them. I do all the testing, mostly for the state health departments, but we do also test samples from all over the world. A select agent is, for example, a bacteria or a virus that the government has felt that if it's in the hands of the wrong person, that it can be very dangerous to um, public health. When we go on inspection, we look in every aspect of a program, safety, security, training, records, to ensure that these programs are also doing their job at the highest level possible. One of the things that's most exciting right now is the the power of technologies that we're calling advanced molecular detection, which is the ability to determine the entire genetic sequence of a pathogen in a matter of days, which just a few years ago would have taken weeks or months. Because we can do these things faster and, and because we can do them reliably and better, we can isolate those patients, we can prevent those unusual kinds of resistant bacteria from spreading from patient to patient. During the Ebola response, CDC rapidly set up a lab in the middle of Sierra Leone to test patient samples for Ebola. The lab out in the field is providing a service that is critical to the investigation. Identifying patients, as well as ruling out patients so that they could then go on with their life. I think knowledge and a better understanding of dangerous pathogens is our greatest tool at minimizing the risk and public health impact of these pathogens. Whether that's improving diagnostics or finding more effective treatments or developing vaccines, it all starts in the lab. My kids, uh, they know what I do. They're proud and I'm proud also to be working here. It's a very great place to work. I think the most important thing about public health is that the work that we do here, myself and my coworkers, is work that saves people's lives. And those are real people. Those are people's moms and dads. And, and that's important to me.